and as they're headed out, you guys uh, grab your Bibles, and we're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, we're going to be reading a pretty lengthy passage all the way through verse 29, so fairly long reading this morning as we continue our look at these various encounters that Jesus has, these one-on-one interactions that Jesus has with different groups of people, different types of people. Last week, we looked at Jesus and his interaction with Nicodemus, who is the classic insider. Well, this week, we are going the opposite direction. It's John 4. He has interaction with a classic outsider. Outsider. John chapter 4 is where we are. Follow along your Bibles, or you can follow along uh, as I read out loud. Um, there, it's going to be there on the screen for you. And he, that's Jesus, had to pass through Samaria, it says. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jake had given to his son Joseph. Did I say Jake? Jacob gave it to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming And is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Praise be the Lord. I want to begin, and we're going to be really brief on an introduction this morning. Because we got, this is a long passage and there's lots to address, but I want to say this at the beginning. It is amazing what God is willing to do in order to be close to you. What God is willing to do in order to draw close to you. 
God is willing to cross whatever barrier it takes, whatever barrier the world erects so that he might be reunited with us. In verse 7, Jesus simply asks for a drink. But in asking for that drink, Jesus is crossing a barrier that is quite quickly uh, connected with the passage. That this woman is stunned that Jesus would have anything to do with her. Even the fact that he would ask her for a drink. And she's stunned that he would drink of her ladle, a Samaritan woman's ladle. The text points it out. The Jews and Samaritans have nothing to do with each other. There's a long historical history uh, between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were considered by the Jews to essentially be Jewish half-breeds. That when it, uh, Jerusalem or when Israel was taken off into captivity, uh, the Assyrians and, and others that ha- moved into the area and they intermarried with the men and women who were left in of the of an Israelite descent. Hundreds of years before this had happened. And the Samaritans are all those who are considered genetically connected to those who intermarried and intermingled with these Gentiles. And so the Jews hate them. And not only that, but the Samaritans have their own form of worship. They only, they only observe the, the Pentateuch. They have their own places of worship. Uh, they have kind of a syncretistic religion. So that's who she is, a Samaritan. But not only that, but she's a woman. And then it was, we find out in the, ca- in the case of the story, she's a fairly immoral woman or a woman who would be looked down upon by the society around her. It says that she's, it's there. Jesus and this woman are meeting at this well at the sixth hour. That's noon is what that means. That is not when you live in a desert, deserted place when a woman would go out to gather water and to carry large jugs back. That's what you do first thing during the day. And what it's displaying by giving us these details is that she is a social outcast. That her and her five, her continued marriage upon marriage upon marriage has made her ostracized in the community and someone who is looked down upon. And so she doesn't want to come and get water with the rest of the village women and come outside the city when they come because that is not people that want to hang out with her and spend time with her. And so she comes at a time in which the well will be deserted. So she's a social, a moral, and an ethnic outcast. And yet what we see here is that Jesus crosses and breaks right through those barriers And why would he do that? Because Jesus longs to bring outsiders in. Because this is what Jesus does. That he is willing to cross the barriers of heaven to hell, from earth to heaven, from the divine to the human, from across gender and race, so that he might make us his. And this is a story of what happens when Jesus breaks those barriers and when those outsiders encounter Jesus. Now, I want to move through this text, so I'm not going to give you points that, that we're kind of going to look at this morning. What I want to do is simply give you headings of the narrative. This is a narrative flow, and so we're going to simply walk through it, but let me just give you the headings to try to give us some categories for our thoughts as we move through the narrative. The first heading is this. It's simply the metaphor. The metaphor. Jesus enters into a conversation with this woman, and she goes, she's stunned that he would ask for water, and she goes, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for water? And Jesus doesn't engage with the barriers in front of them. Instead, he looks at her and says this in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus speaks of a gift, and the gift that he, he, he gives, and the gifts he describes using a metaphor, and that metaphor that he uses here is living water. Water is used as a metaphor throughout the Bible. It's used to describe our cleansing. 
It's used to describe life. And indeed, in our, even our modern vernacular, we use water as a metaphor because of its importance to life. It is representative of life. What is it? 80% of your body is made up of water. Water is unquestionably needed for survival. And not just any water, you need clean water. Josh McCown became a member here uh, last week, is participating, going with, uh, with some folks from CO and Ben Weber uh, over spring break uh, down to a Caribbean island where they're going to be doing work with um, Filters of Hope, where they're going to seek to provide filters for folks and then share the gospel because one of the greatest needs that people have around the world is clean water. In 2010, you guys may remember this, I don't feel like it hit the news quite to the degree that some things, because we're so used to Haiti having terrible things happen to it, that we kind of just kind of see the terrible things happen and we kind of go on with our day. But in 2010, there was an earthquake in Haiti in which the rep- they're, they're fuzzy about how many people actually died, but they, the reports are up, maybe up to 300,000 people died. And it wasn't simply because the earthquake itself was so bad, but it's because Haiti's infrastructure is so weak and, and, and is that when that earthquake hit, things burst and broke and the city, I mean, the country completely broke down in every possible way. And that when the pipelines burst in their infrastructure, what was the cause, one of the cause of thousands upon thousands of deaths is the pipelines burst and the sewage backed up into their water supply. So that for weeks on end, people could not get any, any water that was clean. And so because of that, tens of thousands of people died because they did not have clean water. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's using the, using the metaphor of physical drinking water from a well and saying that just as our bodies are desperate for water, so our souls are desperate for a clean and life-giving spiritual water. That's the metaphor that he's given. And using this metaphor, Jesus is saying, I am offering you soul water that will quench your soul thirst. And using this metaphor, Jesus says to her, I am going to offer you this water. Not just a cup of water, but do you see it? He says, when I give you this water, it becomes a spring. It's not a well that you have to come out to. It's a spring that comes to live inside of you and bubbles up. Therefore, you could be in the middle of a soul desert and still find abundance of life. You can be in a place where circumstances are difficult and hard, and yet you can have this water bubbling up within you. Jesus is using this metaphor to say to you and to us, I offer you spiritual life and soul satisfaction that quenches any thirst that your soul longs for. And then he has the audacity to say, I, I, me, I am the only one who can give you the spring of living water. Only I can give it to you. That's the metaphor. All right, then we move on. She continues. We see the need because she says she's not quite getting what Jesus, she doesn't get the metaphor. She's not getting it. She's thinking, still thinking of a physical spring or not of a spiritual spring. And so she says, yes, give me this water. I don't want to have to come keep hauling out here to get water every single day. In other words, she's saying, oh, you can give me indoor plumbing? Awesome. And Jesus, as we might see in a quite a lot of, lot of his conversations, has quite the non sequitur here, appears here. Jesus seems to suddenly change the subject. She goes, yes, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming out here. And Jesus says, well, first, go get your husband. What? Why? She replies, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you have five husbands. 
Is Jesus simply just changing the subject? Are we moving on from water to some other topic? What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's actually trying to drive home the point. He's saying, no, 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 I'm talking about spiritual things. And I'm pointing out to you by having you go get your husband, I'm pointing out to you your need and what you have looked to for your soul water. He's saying, I'm talking about spiritual water and what you have looked to quench your soul over and over and over again in your life is your husband's. He is pointing out what is going on in this, what is the water in this woman's life. He is taking the metaphor and he's bringing it and making it real and personal. He is saying the protection, the comfort, the security, the acceptance that you have sought in marriage after marriage after marriage, that has been your soul water. And that is why you are thirsty. See, Jesus is showing us here that there is a thirst within all of us, a soul thirst. And this drive within each of us for acceptance, to feel complete, to feel full, to be satisfied and at rest and at peace with life, that longing, Jesus says, is our soul thirst. And he shows us that that soul thirst cannot be satisfied or satiated by the things of this world. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Jesus is connecting here to our human experience that our lives, what they are and they tend to be, is a collection of journeys as we seek out water from wells, spiritual water that we believe will satiate our thirst and the aching we have inside. And we live on this quest for what we believe will quench our internal thirst. If I get that job, then. If I achieve X, then. Then, if I have that person in my life, then. If I'm a part of that friend group, then. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be joyous. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be at peace and rest. Let me give you an example of what this looks like, what this soul thirst that we have, and how the things of this world simply do not satisfy, even when, and maybe especially when we actually get them. Remember, some of you know this. This is almost uh, cliche for pastors to use this illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. In 2005, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes. At this time, he was already a three-time Super Bowl champion. And yet in that interview, he said to the interviewer, he said that there is something in me that is asking, isn't there something greater out there? I have reached every goal, my dream, my life, I have it, and yet I still think it's got to be more than this. You can have Super Bowls, and you can have fame, and you can apparently be the Benjamin Button of quarterbacks, and you can like, like literally your face can like shrink into a different shape like his does, and you can be married to supermodels, and everything in your life can seem to be great, and yet you're asking the question, isn't there more? That soul thirst. And the interviewer asked him, what's the answer? And Brady simply said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He's still searching for it, clearly. We can think of times when we have sought something, a milestone, an achievement in a relationship, and we got it. And then we found we were still thirsty. And the stupidity of humanity, the cul-de-sac of our foolishness, and also the dire straits that we're in, is that for us, the way we think of it is this, is that if I pursue X, and if I achieve X, I'll be happy. But then X does not satisfy, and so what do we do as the answer and the solution? Well, what if I just had more of X? 
That's like the same thing of trying to fix the TV by simply hitting it harder. Jesus is saying that you are thirsty and the wells you're drinking from are dirty and they're only making you sick. You keep running to a wall of success or sex. You run to affirmation. You long for the compliments of others, but the buzz of their compliments wears off. And you're drinking salt water for your soul. And so what is it that's salt water that you keep gobbling up? What is your need? Your need is that you're thirsty. You have a soul thirst. That's the need that this woman has. The Old Testament talks about this too. It says that this soul thirst that we have and the way we seek to quench it by the things of this world, that that is not simply just a, a, an, an, an amoral act, but it is an immoral act. In the Old Testament, in, in Jeremiah, Jesus, or the God says, speaks to his own people, to his people, to Israel, he says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying, I am the fountain. I am the spring of living water, and yet you are running from me, and you are building your own cisterns, but they're broken cisterns. They will not satisfy. They will not satisfy. Because you were designed to be satisfied only by him. God has said you were made to run on a fuel, and that fuel is me. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, nearly all that we call human in human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story is man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. But God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine, and a car is made to run on petrol. It would not run properly on anything else. Now God has designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. There is no other. Therefore, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. And so this woman has a need, a desperate need. She has a soul thirst, a soul that is longs to be quenched by something, anyone. So the woman says, okay, you're, I see you're a prophet. I see you can reveal much about my life. I mean, you're only a stranger, and yet you know these deep parts of my soul and my ache and my hurt in my life. The loss of husband after husband after husband, the abandonment, the isolation, and then where does she go? She then launches into a question about a theological debate of the time. She goes, okay, we Samaritans, we worship at the high places. You Jews say we have to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And so she looks at Jesus and she says, which is it? Now, a lot of commentators believe that what she is doing here is she is throwing a theological diversion onto the field. That it is a theological smoke stream, screen. That Jesus is touching something that is too shameful and sensitive in her life, and she would like to change the subject to a theological debate. Let's go back to the heady stuff. And that could be true. You know, when, I, when I lived in Bosnia and we would do evangelism with uh, college students, this is what they would do. If we got too close to their life, we're asking questions about the deeper part of their souls and their life and what, what made them happy, and, and, and they, they would want to kind of diverge. And they had two theological things they would always throw out. One, the first thing they would do if we got too close is they would begin talking about the Civil War that had happened 10 years earlier. And they'd be like, oh, all the awful things. Essentially, they're throwing out suffering. 
And the second theological thing they would throw out, particularly if it was Muslim students, it was they would throw out the Trinity. They'd be like, but wait, what is this Trinity? As a way of trying to get us off the, off the sense. I think that's what this woman is doing. Think about what has just happened here. Jesus has just put his finger on and stunned her by pointing to the most shameful aspect of her life. Her rejection, her isolation, maybe her adultery, the reason why she is rejected and an outcast and an outsider is because of this divorce after divorce and marriage after marriage. And she is a woman who Jesus points this out and she sees where he's getting at. Oh, you're saying this is my water. What do I, I need clean water in my life. I need God to be in my life. Okay, but how do I get God? How do I get God? Where do I go to find God? And so she asked the question, do I find him at the high places in Samaria? Do I find him in Jerusalem at the temple? In other words, what she's crying out, she's saying, I want God to cleanse me. I want him to give me this living water, but I don't know how to get to God. I don't even know which temple to go to. And to make matters worse, I'm an unclean woman. I wouldn't be allowed in anyways. And so when Jesus speaks to her, he now has to speak to her, explain to her what the gift of living water is. This is the third heading, the gift. What is the gift of living water inside of us? Let me tell you what it is really briefly, and then I'm going to show you in the text where we go. The gift of living water that comes inside of us is God himself. And more specifically, the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, who comes to invade our lives. Jesus answers in an odd way. She goes, do we worship in the temple in Jerusalem or can we worship here in Samaria? And Jesus says, no, it's neither. It doesn't matter. And then he says this in verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now that phrase in spirit and truth is a phrase that gets kicked around a lot as we talk about worship. And here's often what people think that Jesus is talking about here, that he's saying, hey, listen, it's not a matter about, it's not a big deal about where you worship, but it's how you worship, that that's what they say is Jesus is saying. That you need to come with spirit, that means you need to have joy and affection. You need to raise your hands, and there needs to be emotions and emo emotiveness as you worship God, but you also need to have the truth, so you have to have become with good doctrine. So you need to think rightly about God, and you need to feel rightly about God. That's how you experience God's presence. But that, I, that is not actually what is being said here. The phrase spirit and truth is actually more closely should be read that you will worship in or by the spirit who is true. Or the spirit of truth. In fact, John's going to bring this up a couple more times. In what is called the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16, three times he's going to call the spirit the spirit of truth. Jesus is saying that you will have access to God's presence and you will enter into worship by the spirit of truth coming inside of you. Jesus is asking, she is asking, where do I draw close to this God to get cleansed, to have my soul satisfied? Jesus is not saying, well, it's not about where you go to church. Jesus is not saying, well, it's making sure, it's, it's more about the, the method of your worship. He's not concerned about the method of her worship. But she's coming and she's saying, how do I draw close to God and get cleansed and have my soul satisfied? And Jesus' answer is this, I draw close to you. I don't just draw close to you, I come inside of you. 
By the Spirit of God, I come into your life. I invade your heart and your soul so that you, I reteach your heart to drink of me and to long for me. The gift of God is nothing short of this that he's returning to here. The metaphor of living water is saying the Spirit of God is going to come live inside of you. God in us. God with us permanently and eternally. And we actually come full circle. In John chapter 7, Jesus makes this abundantly clear as well as John the writer. It says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, all the same metaphors. And then John says this in verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit. In other words, what it means to worship in spirit and truth is the spirit of truth comes to invade your life. And that you have access to God anywhere and everywhere and in every circumstance because God has not waited for us to come to him to some place, but he has come and invaded us. Not God beside us, not God around us, not God ahead of us, not God behind us, but God in us. This is how much God longs to have intimacy and connection with even outsiders. He goes out to the outcast. It doesn't simply have a conversation with them, but he invades their very life. And the implication of this is for us is this, is that for you as a Christian, if you are invaded by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you, it means that no matter your circumstances in life, you have a fountain of living water inside of you. See, the way we tend to think about a satisfied life, we base it around our circumstances. Do I have somebody who loves me, who touches me, who feeds me, who praises me? Do I have affirmation? Do I have money? Do I have success? It's circumstantial. What Jesus is saying is, no, we're, we're eschewing those. We're putting those to the side. That you as a Christian, if you're somebody who has the spirit of God indwelling with you, living with you this closely, you can be walking through suffering and hell and loss and still have life and life abundant. That's what he's saying. He walks with you into every temptation, every hardship, and everything you face because the Spirit of God is going to be there eternally. This means that life can be difficult and hard and exhausting. It means your circumstances can be devoid of anything that we would describe as blessings, and yet you can still have joy, and you can still feel abundant and experience an abundant life. You see, what we normally talk about God blessing us is what we usually mean by that is that we, we thank God for giving us the American dream. Man, I'm just so thankful to God that he gave me health, wealth. We want the American gene, and we just want Jesus as the force multiplier. And so what we think of is acknowledging God is to go, Jesus, thank you for all of your blessings. And what we mean is the blessings that he's given us over here when Jesus is saying, that's not the issue. I've given you the blessing of me. What this means is this, is that you can have nothing plus Jesus and you can still have a satisfied soul. It's Jesus plus loss still equals satisfied. Jesus plus a loveless marriage still equals satisfied. Jesus plus a painful past still can equal satisfied. Now that math makes no sense to us. We think Jesus, is, his job is to come and bless me with the happy things that equals, then equals satisfaction. But that is not where we usually experience soul satisfaction. 
Ask the Christians here in the midst who've lived for a long time and walked with Jesus for a long time. When was the time that they felt most soul satisfied? If we were to open up, we were to have open mic day today. Just be like, Harry, I'm going to ask a question. When did you most feel soul satisfied with Jesus uh, and have your soul satisfied and fulfilled in this life? And I were to open it up, it would take a while, but one of you would eventually get the courage. By the way, we do have this open mic every week, just not here. They're called community groups. So we have open mic, and finally one of you gets the courage to come up. You think they would come up and share about the time in which, you know what, the, the time in which I was most satisfied was that that day I got the promotion. I was so satisfied that day. Or the day in which, man, my bank account finally reached a certain number. Or the day that I, I got eight Amazon boxes show up in my house at the same time. It was awesome. <laughs> my soul was just so satisfied. I saw them stacked up there. I saw it on the ring doorbell, and I couldn't wait to get home. You think that's what, what they would say? No, most likely what they would say is this. It was the time when my face was swollen with weeping, and my nose was red with wiping, and my lips were crusted with the snot that had been running, and in that moment, Jesus satisfied my soul. And then someone else would stand up and share about a time when they hit rock bottom in their sin and their shame. And in the utter shock, I mean, they shocked themselves with how sinful they were the soul-crushing realization of what their addiction had done. And then they would share about how in that moment of fear, when they thought that everything was lost, where it seemed like the only option was either to end their life or to cry out to God, and they cried out to God and they found him there. It was there that their soul was most satisfied. And then another person would get up and share how they lived a religious life, but with a cold existence, dead to joy and hope, feeling utterly isolated, in a passionless marriage, in shallow friendships, and the thought of trying to light even the smallest flicker of happiness by buying another blouse just made them want to scream. And so they did. And they screamed at God, and they cried out, and they threw crap across the floor, and they said, God, I, I have to have you, or this deadness will win. I need you. And in the holy providence of that moment, in the honesty of their anger, God said, you have me. And their soul was satisfied in him. God says, and every, everyone who thirsts, let him come to me, and his heart will flow with living waters. So we've had the heading of the metaphor, the need, the gift, which is the spirit of God inside of us. And lastly, we see the giver, the heading of the giver. This isn't just in one spot. It's actually, we're just saving it to the end for a number of reasons, but because it's throughout. And little clues. There's an issue here. She longs to draw close to God to have her soul satisfied. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to draw close to you. And yet there's the question of this, how? How can God draw close and live that intimately with a sinner? When she talks about going to worship, what did they do as their primary act of worship? They would sacrifice. And why was their primary act of worship at the temple or at the high places sacrifices? Because the sacrifices, they knew in order to come close to God, that they needed a sacrifice to cover over their sin, over their uncleanliness. And so she's asking Jesus about the place of worship, which means she's asking about the place of sacrifice. How can the Spirit draw near to me? The me, me of all people, how can he come live inside of me? Even Samaritans don't even want to hang out with me. How could God draw close to a sinner like me? Well, we skipped over the clues, but the clues are there. And here's what they are. Here's the clues. 
First, Jesus answers in this whole issue about worship. He says, the hour is coming when you will worship in spirit and truth. The hour. Now, in the book of John, whenever Jesus refers to his hour or the hour, the hour refers to his death. His death. In other words, he's saying that the point at which you will get to worship in spirit and truth, the means by which you will have the spirit of truth invade your life is through my death. And then you actually see there's another clue. What time of day is Jesus meeting with this woman? The sixth hour. Let me read to you from John 19. It says this. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he that's Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. What are they saying? At the sixth hour, Jesus is declared to be an outsider, an outcast. Take him outside the walls and put him to death. And so they take Jesus out and they crucify him as the outsider, as the outcast. And then it says this later on in John 19, and after this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The fountain of living water came to live among us. And we cast him out. And he went to the cross and he said, I am thirsty. It's interesting, on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 in one of his other phrases on the cross. He said, my God, my God, where have you, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he's thinking about Psalm 22. And he's actually appropriating the words of Psalm 22 to express what he's experiencing. You know what Psalm 22 verse 14 says? I am being poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a pot, and my, mouth, my tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is saying, at the cross, I am being poured out. I am thirsty so that you might have my presence. He had the ultimate thirst. He died in torment so that we might have the cool water of God's favor. So the curse of God would be removed from us. And this is indeed actually what Paul brings up. Paul tells us, and Jesus tells us another place in John, he says, I have to go away. I have to go to the cross and I have to go away because if I don't, then I can't send to you the Holy Spirit. And Paul says this in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, insider, might come to the Gentiles, outsiders, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He purchased for you his eternal presence. That on the cross, we tend to think of it, yes, he purchased me forgiveness, he purchased me cleansing, he purchased purchased for you the right for the Holy Spirit to invade your life. He purchased for you the indwelling presence of God in and through his spirit. That the blessing that he pays for there on the cross, that he thirsts for, is to send you the living water of his spirit so that you may never have to thirst again. 
And she says, oh, yes, yes, I'll experience this when the Messiah comes. And then what does he say? I'm here. I'm here. The means by which you're going to get living water is through me. I'm going to pay. I'm going to thirst. I'm going to be poured out so that you might have me for all eternity. Have you received the living water that satisfies your soul? Or are you still searching? How can you know you've received this living water? I'm going to let you discuss that at your community groups this week. I'm just going to give you a hint to prime the pump. You can talk about this with your family today maybe, but the verses go on in verse 28 and 29 where we close our narrative. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? How can you know you have living water? One, you find yourself consistently looking to Christ. That's why he gave you his spirit. That's one of the spirit's main jobs. He enters into your life and goes, look what he did for you. Look what he did for you. Second, look what she, she can do. She can speak of her former shame with joy. And she can do it in the midst of those who had outcast her, had sent her out. What courage. But the last thing, did you see? What did she do? She left her water jar. She left her water jar. What is the broken cistern that you keep using to try to fill up your life? The first step is to leave the water jar. That's called repentance. To say, I have been looking to this thing to satisfy my soul no longer. I leave the water jar behind. To me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. He has ears. Let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed, you are the, the big satisfaction of my soul, I believe. And yet, Lord, I confess, even as one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that if someone were to look at my life, they would believe that my fountain comes from watching Netflix and having a, a glass of bourbon. But that is where the real satisfaction of my soul comes from. That escaping my responsibilities and finding quiet with a book, that's actually where my soul satisfaction comes from. So Heavenly Father, I repent of my empty cisterns. And I lay them at your feet, and I pray that you would help me to leave them behind by your spirit. Would you come and convince my soul once again? Would you fill me up by the spirit that you are better, that what you offer is better, that time in your presence is better, that reflecting on Christ is better, that telling others of the one who covered my shame is better? Oh, Lord, would you give me a better food, a better bread, and a better drink? than the things that I daily run after. Would you do that for everyone in this room? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.